Madam Amina, welcome to Conversation With. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Madam, the fighting in Marawi has stopped now. But is Marawi actually only starting as the breeding ground for new fighters, given that the whole city has been destroyed almost, there are no jobs to be had, schools aren't all opening. So what are all these young men, these young people going to be doing? Yeah, you've hit the nail on, uh, on the head. Um, what we have in Marawi is unlike uh, the destruction of a city by typhoon or earthquake. I mean, you, you cannot blame anybody. It's an act of God. But in this particular case, when the destruction is now seen as uh, being done at the hand of your own government, then you can just imagine the kind of narrative that can be developed and repeated over and over again to get people angry with government. When we look at what's going on in Marawi, and I visited the refugee camps, you have got, uh, the, uh, the estimate is like 200,000 uh, displaced people, no fault of their own. But the thing is, the reality is, they have been displaced for what, seven months now. No work, uh, their homes destroyed. You don't even have any idea when you can rebuild or if you can rebuild because you have absolutely nothing left. In the midst of all this bad news, what is there that can be constructively done? The one major lesson we must make sure our governments learn is that a military solution is never the answer. It has got to be a mixture. You've got to have the hard stuff, the military stuff, the security stuff, but you must also have a lot of efforts to prevent the expansion, to prevent the rolling over of, uh, of uh, narratives. The first thing is government must rely on all of the affected sectors. And here you're talking about the business sector, the academe, the religious plays a very important role here, the women, youth. How do you bring them over? So you say, Madam, that military action cannot be the sole solution to problems like this. So do you think that the administration of uh, President Duterte were right in how they dealt with Marawi? There is still a debate about that. Initially, in May, um, the first couple of weeks, the Marawi residents really viewed the military as their savior. But as time dragged by and there was no end in sight, then the attitude started changing. What, what about some uh, analysts and commentators who also say that some parts of ordinary civilian Marawi society actually helped these various extremists because supplied them with foods, uh, helped them to store arms. So in other words, that there was actually some civil society or rather ordinary people who actually supported these IS extremists. What would you say to that? In Southeast Asia, um, doesn't really matter if you're talking about Singapore, Myanmar, or the Philippines. The family unit, the clans, are probably even more important than the nation. And when that happens, and a member of your, mem a member of your family or your, or your clan is in trouble, you are 
duty-bound, you're obligated to help. It, isn't it a bit of a cop-out that we say that it's part of our Asian values, that we always protect our families? But that means that all sorts of atrocities become permissible. Well, it, you know, it doesn't only happen in, the, in our part of the world. Look at the United States. It's happening, it's happening there. It's happening in, in Europe. But uh, I think because of the closeness of our family system here, the nuclear family system is not nuclear. It's, it's planned, it's extended. <laughs> then that value, uh, we cannot get rid of it. But it can be tempered. And it can be tempered if you had a good educational system that now allows your young people to look at a, a global view, and a global village um, bigger than the family, that the concern of the global village is very important and you cannot allow your loyalty to one family member to destroy the stability, the prosperity, and the happiness of your global community. Do you think, though, that this uh, idea that you can solve problems through violence um, has been given a certain amount of indirect, perhaps un unintentional support, by the actions of, of President Duterte? Because he has given direct uh, sanctioning and uh, approval of using extrajudicial measures, in some cases, even extrajudicial killing. Do you think that there is a link between the two? In other words, that once we accept it within one area and at that high political office, we also will accept it in other areas? Well, this is the interesting thing. Um, there was a, a survey, a Gallup uh, survey that came out recently about happiness. And we were really surprised that the Philippines is top 10. I, mean, I think we were like number five. So the feeling of happiness of Filipinos can only come out because they feel secure. So whatever it is President Duterte is doing, he's doing something right because his, his flock feels secure under his leadership and therefore they express their happiness. But that's one thing, because we're, not, we're talking about uh, extrajudicial killings, about the, uh, the drug uh, dealers and uh, drug users. Let's focus on what's happening in the Muslim South. Our reality is completely different from the reality of the nation, where extrajudicial killings is something completely horrible a violation of human rights that can never be accepted in the Muslim South because we have been used to military action since uh, uh, former President Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law. Our villages have been hamleted and we have been bombed and it seems nobody thinks very much about it because we are minorities. We have a different appreciation. So do you feel yes, do you feel safe? Are you part of this group of the happy uh, Filipinos? Well, we are different because our sense of happiness it relies on our feeling that tomorrow I'm safe. There's not going to be any bombing. Uh, it's quite a tomorrow, tragic thing to say, madam. Exactly. Tomorrow, we're going to be okay because ISIS is not here or the Abu Sayyaf is not here. Our reality is completely different. We, we have a precarious life and we find happiness where we can, we can cultivate it. I guess we, which is why families are very important. But having said that, 
when uh, the president declared that he was going to extend martial law, there was a reaction from many leaders in uh, Mindanao, uh, Muslim Mindanao included, because our uh, experiences during the martial law of President Marcos made our, the hairs on our arms rise when that mention of an extension of martial law for at least a year came out because the fear of what happened before during the Marcosian uh, martial law really came to for our parents and uh, you know my the people my age who were uh, teenagers when the martial law was uh, was implemented uh, we don't want that to happen again because martial law becomes synonymous with uh, suppression of rights for the minorities it's not just suppression of rights i mean you could you could eradicate uh, a village you could uh, a bomb a village and say that you know the extremists are there and uh, in the the first martial law the marcos martial law you couldn't ask questions it's said that at least a thousand foreign fighters came to Marawi to take part, coming very often from Southeast Asian countries. What would you say to the leaders uh, of the various Southeast Asian countries um, about this? I remember a news item from a couple of years ago when you had two Singaporean families who brought even their children. They were going to go to Syria. Yes. And they were going to help the, the, the ISIS fight for, for their independence. And that really drives home a very important point. It doesn't matter whether you're poor or whether you're rich. If you feel that your core being, your identity is being threatened and it's going to be eradicated by the powers that be, you are going to react. Now, we have to ask our governments here in ASEAN. That's not true, though, is it, madam? They aren't going to be eradicated. No, it's not true. But this is the mindset. And this is where our governments and ASEAN have to really put their thinking caps together and come up with a strategy. How do you neutralize that kind of a narrative? Our governments are horrible at neutralizing that kind of a narrative. I think our governments What do you suggest then? What is the way of neutralizing that? You've even been minister for youth. Many of these persons were leading perfectly decent lives, or at least were able to earn a living, and yet... They take on this cause, very often, in fact, which has got no reflection on their, on their living standards nor their opportunities in their own home country. Some of them even coming from uh, Indonesia, which is a Muslim-majority yes, country. that's right. And I think this is because our world has completely changed. And our governments are still Jurassic. Our governments are still using uh, pen and paper, but our world is global. It's in the cloud. And our young people are swimming in these new uh, waters. I mean, they're up there in the cloud, and our governments don't know what to do. Our government leaders don't know what to do. And one interesting thing maybe that our government should uh, start working on is to get young leaders together with the leaders of the information technology and leaders of media, leaders of creative arts, to come together and, and talk to them. How do you reach out? so that you can neutralize these uh, ideas that 
are even being uh, rejected by Muslim religious leaders as being completely un-Islamic and has no bearing in, in our faith. How do we bring the religious leaders, how do we get young Muslim religious leaders, young ulama and young alima, to come together and start talking about what does Islam really mean? I mean, does it really allow these kinds of uh, heinous measures? And then come up with a communication strategy. That's our basic problem here. We don't have a good communication strategy. We don't have a communication plan. If you were, let's say, speaking to a young person, another ASEAN country, let's say in Thailand though, how do you convince them that Marari is important and what's happening in the southern parts of the Philippines it matters to other young ASEAN people? Or is it just a problem that's taking place there in, in the Philippines? Well, this is the thing. Uh, the minority groups understand Marawi because in some, in a smaller scale, it's also happening. So in southern Thailand, in Patani, they understand what's going on in Marawi. In Myanmar, with the Rohingya, they understand Marawi. The ones who do not understand Marawi are the people from the majority. So the Indonesians, you say, don't understand? The Indonesians understand because they do have pockets where they have this kind of um, very uh, fundamentalist, traditionalist uh, groups. And the majority of the Indonesian Muslims feel that they are alien. This is far from, from the culture of uh, Indonesian Muslims. So how do we communicate with the majority is more the, the problem. I learned to take my fight, not to the hills, but to the street. We were street parliamentarians. We would rally and uh, speak out. Madam, you're sitting across from a woman who says that her son has gone to join IS and has even told her that he's thinking of being a suicide um, bomber. What would you say to her? Oh, that's uh, going to be extremely complicated to, to factor. Let me just tell you that I have got nephews who have joined the Abu Zayyaf. Within your own family? Yes, within my own family. And they're, uh, and they're educated. But this is, this is why I say it's so complicated. These boys were highly educated. Their father was a very peaceful uh, soul. I was a teacher. I was a very good teacher. But these young people, when they grew up, they grew up in an environment where they, they saw tremendous abuse um, at the hands of certain military groups. And they were all powerless to do anything about it. So they grew up with this anger inside them. And when they became adults, uh, they had linked up already with people who felt the same and who had the capacity to strike back and got enticed to join these, uh, these groups. Uh, these nephews of mine, they've been caught and they're in the penitentiary uh, where they're now being rehabilitated. But it's so complicated because no one story is the same. And you need to be able to have a lot of uh, women, a lot of mothers working with religious leaders so that we can 
try and listen to their stories. But you, you have to listen to their stories at an early age. Because when they're already 30, it's a little late. They're going to end up in the independent century if they're lucky, dead if they're unlucky. But the, the capacity to listen to another point of view is a capacity we need to develop. Sometimes, and even I am guilty of this, um, if they're already talking a language which is completely anathema to me, my brain shuts down. And I would want to just tell them to shut up. You're, you're wrong and I'm right. Once we get into that mode, you're lost. But how do you make yourself uh, be willing to listen to, uh, to what is to me an, a very alien point of view and to try and find middle ground? One of the things that we're trying to uh, develop back home is to work with religious women who teach in the madrasa, uh, provide them the training, provide them the skills so that they could talk to the students and the families of the students that uh, they teach and be listening posts. At least be able to uh, tell us if there's anything uh, happening, anything uh, worrisome happening so that we could put our thinking cups on and try and find out how do we deal with it. Do you ever blame yourself or do any of your members of your family ever blame themselves for what your nephews have done? Or we're thinking of we, doing? Well, we cannot, we cannot blame the family. We cannot blame the parents because, you see, all of us were in the same boat. And it's, uh, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. In my student years, because of what was happening to us in the South, I joined the activist groups. I was one of those who would rally in front of the U.S. Embassy and... Uh, tell these uh, dictators to leave our country. I was one of those who rallied against President Marcos. But why didn't you take to violence? Because I grew up in a slightly different environment. I was able to escape the conflicts in the South. I went to the University of the Philippines, and it was different. There I learned to take my fight not to the hills, but to the street. We were street parliamentarians. We would rally and uh, speak out. In the province, you did not have that option because it was martial law. So in that kind of an environment, everything goes inside and it goes deep into the ground and it finds expression in violence. So the one thing that we cannot uh, definitely do is to create an environment that will bring us back to that scenario, the martial law scenario where people feel that they have no voice and that the only way to make government listen is to get a gun and shoot it out. So we need to be able to strengthen the democratic processes, make sure that people feel safe in voicing out, uh, not with, with alternative facts or face or what do they call it? Fake news. Uh, fake news but with what you believe to be uh, the reality, whether you believe it or he believes it or other people believe it, but be, to be able to voice it out. Because only when you are able to have this contest of ideas, 
can you make sure that you have a, uh, a resolution of conflict that's peaceful and democratic? Madam Amina, thank you very much for being on Conversation With. Thank you so much. And do come with us to Marawi.